Thanks very much, and thank you for inviting me to be with you here today. I hope uh, in the next 40 minutes I can uh, help you think about things which are not the short-term concerns that you'll read in today's papers and that I'm sure you've got back home, uh, but the broader concerns and the opportunities of the 21st century. This is a remarkable time. Uh, anyone uh, that is alive today, I believe, is extremely lucky because this is a time of the most amazing opportunity for mankind, uh, but there's also unprecedented risk. And so what I'd like to talk a bit about is some of the big opportunities uh, that are likely to play out over the coming years, but also some of the downside risks and of course the events of the current time just emphasize what these sorts of systemic risks uh, might look like in the 21st century. Of course, predicting the future is inevitably uh, a, fool, a fool's profession. And um, I certainly hope that I won't be predicting too much. So do, do uh, get back to me in the questions and uh, challenge me on this if you feel that I'm predicting. Predictions are always uh, likely to be wrong, except by chance when they happen to be right. Uh, but that's not because the people are particularly smart or their organizations uh, are particularly good. Even the best organizations, the best leaders, the smartest people get the future wrong. And it's important to try and understand why this is the case. Why are we so bad at understanding the future? And these are just three quotations uh, from people, famously the inventors of computers, uh, including big names uh, like uh, here we have Ken Olson, uh, Bill Gates, many of these people were unable to foresee the implications of what they were doing and got their predictions of where this is likely to play out spectacularly wrong. But they were the best people, the smartest people, and they were on top of their professions. Uh, similarly, Maggie Thatcher famously said three years uh, before Nelson Mandela was released and was it was obvious he was going to become president of South Africa, that anyone who thinks the ANC is going to run South Africa is living in cloud cuckoo land. And that's not because she wasn't smart. It's not because MI5 and MI6 aren't amongst the best intelligence agencies in the world. It's simply because they didn't understand how the future was likely to unfold. So my first caution would be don't predict the future. But let's try and understand some of the big trends, some of the big shifts, structural shifts that are likely to occur and how they likely impact on all our lives. And these are going to be long lives. We're going to live, I hope, uh, for many, many year longer years than our ancestors. What's important to stress as well is how quickly history moves and how this pace of change is accelerating. So the pace of change has accelerated and with that has accelerated complexity and integration. All of these things coming together means that the future is even more unpredictable than it ever was in the past. And there are also some other structural changes, and I'll come back to those, like climate change, that make this complexity even more complex uh, than it ever was before. So we've evolved extremely rapidly uh, over the last 20, 30 years. Uh, really since the Second World War, there's been this massive explosion of technology, of integration, of globalization, uh, which has accelerated particularly since 1980, uh, which has seen this exponential growth. And many of the things you'll see that I present are exponential growth rates, geometric uh, improvements, or geometric increases in tensions and risks. And that, of course, is a major challenge. Can exponential growth continue forever in anything? And what we've seen in the financial markets uh, is what happens when these things correct. What's extremely important to stress 
is not only um, the negatives and the risks that come with this, but also the massive uh, improvements in humanity over this period. Now what we have here is a 2,000 year timeline of population growth uh, and income growth. And you see from this a number of things. Note that these are exponential growth rates uh, on the side, um, logarithmic. And note too that there are only two periods in this uh, 2,000 year history where income growth has exceeded population growth. And despite this very, very rapid improvement uh, in, the, uh, in income, population growth has accelerated alongside it. But in the last 30 years, income growth has exceeded population growth. That happened about 1,000 years ago uh, as well, a period, interestingly, of mass integration relative to things happening at that time of the Earth, the coming together of civilizations from the East and the West, China, India, Islam, and Christianity coming together at that time, and big migrations relative to the population stock of that time of people, a flowering of ideas. And that is really what's been associated most dramatically with this period. I would argue that it's ideas and the capacity of people to share ideas, to learn from other experience that defines uh, this period of massive improvement. It's the ability to learn faster, to evolve faster if you want, which comes from learning. Uh, and that comes from sharing, it comes from migration, it comes from recently new forms of technology, the internet, uh, for example, mass cheapening of travel and other things. So we have this most remarkable experience in recent years where population uh, has grown very rapidly by about 2 billion over the last 30 years, yet income has done well. And so we live in this extraordinary time, and I would guess that if you were a margin looking at Earth and saying what's happening there over a long time, you would say something very different has happened over the last 30, 40 years on Earth. And that's because for the first time we've had this extremely strong improvement on many, many indicators of human development. Now I've spent my life in development and I know that there's over a billion people virtually dying of starvation and that there's a lot of mass suffering around in many different dimensions. But anyone that believes that development has been a failure just doesn't see the facts because the, the overall story is this mass improvement of the quality of life of people on Earth. So life expectancy at birth, which is one very important measure of uh, well-being, of course, there are many, many others, and people should choose what's important to them and look at those statistics. But life expectancy at birth has increased by about 20 years over the last 30 years. Now, it took about 1,000 years before that to get that sort of increase in life expectancy. So something very different is happening uh, in this period. Illiteracy on Earth. Uh, has gone down by about a half over this period, from about 50% to 25%. Again, something which took, well, the whole history of mankind to uh, achieve, well, not history of mankind, recent, about 500 years, but this dramatic drop. We get, we're reaching a point where most people on Earth, uh, overwhelming majority, will soon be literate. A truly remarkable thing, particularly if we believe that ideas are what generate growth uh, and improvements in the quality of life. And this matters for many things. For example, 
as waterborne diseases are one of the major ways in which people die. If you just can teach people through communication that washing your hands will make a big difference to your life expectancy and your children's life expectancy, you have a big improvement. Literacy helps in many, many different ways, including in very basic ways. And income per capita, which is a very crude uh, but well-used measure of well-being, has also improved dramatically. So that the absolute number of people living under a dollar a day, another crude measure of well-being, has gone down by about 300 million, despite this massive increase of about 2 billion people in the world's population. So something very special has happened over this period. And I would argue this is related to globalization, integration, and the sharing of ideas. The ability of people to change what they are doing and what they've always done uh, more rapidly than before. And that's associated particularly since 1990 with the fall of the Berlin Wall uh, and the opening up since particularly the 80s of China. So that's really where the Big Bang uh, is happening at the global level on this. But there are many other things, fiber optics, containerization, air travel and so on, which have all contributed to this very marked change in the long-term story uh, on Earth. And the question, of course, we have to ask is where is this going? Uh, will there be continued uh, exponential growth? And here you see what's happened on population. Uh, a very stable long-term story, uh, that's 2.5 million years, uh, and the question is where does the 21st century fit in uh, on these population dynamics? Will we just continue to have this sort of growth? Now the remarkable thing about looking forward on population is how wide the range is on the population projections. Uh, one of the, the things that I've been astounded about uh, as I begin to try and think about the future is just how uncertain even something which I used to think was relatively stable like demographic trends are. So these are the UN population projections going out to 2050 and what you see in these is a range of about 4 billion people. That's about two-thirds of the current population of Earth with huge implications for everything, resource use, climate change, financial markets, asset values and so on. Uh, massive implications. So why is there such a wide range? Um, and that's because we really don't understand some of the underlying uh, fundamentals here. These are just the same data broken down by region. You see the uncertainty is particularly great in the developing regions of the world. Population, of course, is comprised uh, of two principal density and fertility uh, of birth rates. Those are the two principal drivers of this. And so let's just quickly try and unpack where these two things are going. What you see on life expectancy, and this is from our Institute of Aging in the 21st Century School, is projections which are a steady increase, about two years per decade improvement in life expectancy on average, about three months per year. It's quite mind-boggling, uh, that steady improvement. That's a historical trend. You also see a convergence projected uh, over this region. Now, I myself believe that these are rather uh, pessimistic in the sense I think that populations will live even longer than projected here. And that there are people in the 21st century school that believe that there's people around today who will live to well beyond 150. So this is a very controversial area. Uh, but I was recently in Hong Kong a couple of weeks ago. Their actuarial life expectancy uh, at birth at the moment is 104. Right. So life expectancy improving steadily, 
there's a lot of debate about whether there's a lucky generation or not, uh, but I believe, and we'll come back to some of the main health uh, dimensions in a few minutes, that we actually like to see a sharp improvement again in the length of life. Now, a critical question with this, of course, is the quality of life and what will happen with Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, dementia, and so on. We'll come back to that uh, in a minute. Um, these are just simply breaking down uh, some of these projections by the different agencies uh, that do them. And what you see uh, in those is steady increase. The more recent the projections, the longer they're going out. This is female life expectancy. And of course, females are continuing to project it to live longer uh, than men. But this is also something which has changed. Now, the other side of this is fertility. What is happening uh, on fertility rates? And here there's even greater uh, uncertainty than on the life expectancy dimensions. And that's because these things are changing so rapidly. So this is fertility ratios by different regions. And the, the yellow is the projection for 2050, you see everywhere the same trend, a very sharp decline in fertility rates. But again, these might be, uh, and there's increasing evidence uh, suggesting these might be overestimates. What's really surprised people on fertility is how quickly it can change. So within a generation, you can go from seven kids per family to less than two within a generation. And this has happened in Taiwan. This is happening in uh, parts of China and Hong Kong. Well, China had the one child policy, but Hong Kong, it's happening. So this, the countries with the lowest fertility rates are no longer what we imagine. Italy is what te people tend to have in their mind. It's more like emerging markets, particularly in Asia. And that's because when women get jobs, uh, when they get educated, when they get urbanized, they tend to prefer other things than child rearing. Uh, and the whole demographics around it are pointing to a very sharp. Of course, what happens on pensions, retirement ages, and so on, will also shape this. And we'll come back to that uh, in a minute, because that's a key driver as well uh, of fertility. People who feel they have to have lots of kids to keep them alive in their old age, uh, that changes their perceptions of how many uh, kids they should have. But dramatic declines, so that we're getting in many parts of the world to below replacement levels, uh, too, and uh, over this period. And we're also getting to a situation which isn't reflected here, which is that there's a lot of uh, gender imbalance as well. So uh, in China, there are provinces where there are 1.3 men for every female. Okay, so also greatly curtailing. Um, fertility. So if you have societies where men are rewarded because they uh, get jobs easier or whatever, and you have technologies which allow women to choose whether they have a man or a boy or a girl, you get into gender imbalances which drive down your fertility rates. Uh, so this is also a, a key factor going forward. And these two things together mean that you get rapidly aging populations uh, and very strong pension demands. So the pressure on the youth in terms of their need to support pensions, retirement is going to be uh, increasing dramatically. These are the different dependency ratios for the different regions going out to 2030. Uh, and what you see in the rich countries, we have, we're rapidly moving to a situation where there are two workers per dependent. Uh, and this trend is happening uh, in the other regions, although at a slower pace. Uh, of course, 
we will begin to redefine what we mean by dependent and retirement age and so on. And I would guess uh, that retirement ages by this end of this period will be a thing of the past. Uh, there will be no statutory retirement ages. There will be a much more open way of engaging with this debate. Uh, also, of course, if you're very healthy at the age of 75 or 80, why would you want to uh, retire, but you might not be able to because the, of the pressure on the pension systems either. Now this also has massive implications, these ratios, for uh, asset values. The, the elderly will become the dominant populations politically, uh, again, the average ages will increase, we'll move from population pyramids as we've known them to skyscrapers with a virtually similar number of people at each level uh, of, of the decile. Uh, just tailing off with a little peak at the very top, uh, that might be around the 10th decile, 100 years uh, old, uh, and that has very important implications for many things. So, you know, your kids might inherit your houses when you are 110 and they are 85. Um, you might get into the, a job and find your bosses there until you are 70. Um, that changes perceptions, it changes expectations, and it of course changes who has the assets and who controls uh, power in society. So very dramatic implications play out of uh, these different uh, dimensions. Will migration uh, make a big change to this? Uh, this is, of course, something that is very aggregate figures. So uh, in some societies, like the US, migration has played a very, very powerful part. But the numbers involved are likely to be way in excess of what uh, migrants could um, contribute based on historical experience. Of course, the number of migrants or the share of migrants in societies now is relatively low. Uh, compared to historical standards, and that's been the case for much of the uh, 20th century with the imposition of border controls and things which didn't exist before. And you know that from the experience of the US, of course, where in the 19th century much higher levels of migration occurred than uh, later in the 20th century. But migration is unlikely to fix this demographic imbalance in terms of uh, supplies of labors and so on. And of course, the other side of this is will the migrants still want to come? Uh, because their societies will be uh, doing uh, very well and they'll also have a demand for labor. And you see that already uh, in the UK, for example, where there's a net outflow of Polish workers now to back to Poland, uh, where you see some of these things beginning to play through. Economic growth, demographic change uh, being part of that story. So migration, very important. We predict, oh, predict, I said, let's not predict, <laughs> we expect. <laughs> um, great increases in migration, but not equivalent to changing the nature of the labor market in a fundamental way, or the pensions market, retirement funds, and so on, in a fundamental way. So we're projecting you know, maybe 100 million migrants in the rich countries uh, going forward uh, to 2040, 2050. A big number, uh, but not proportional to the size of the labor forces uh, and other demands on this. A lot of what's driving this, of course, is what's happening uh, in Asia. Uh, massive growth, looking forward, and these are World Bank projections, uh, which is uh, uh, doing about the only global integrated work long term uh, in this area, but still rather rudimentary and based rather much on a backward look. And what you see in these is uh, a situation where the future looks very much like the past. Aggregate growth rates of between six, seven, eight, 
percent, and uh, for the rich countries, uh, sorry, the emerging markets, and growth rates, which are rather tepid, but very similar to the historical ones, of around 2% uh, for the richer countries. Uh, in today's markets, that looks rather optimistic. Uh, but these long-run trends are the historical trends. So what also is emphasized by this, and it's something we tend to uh, overlook when you look back, is what we've seen in Asia in the last 30 years has never been seen uh, on the planet before which is large parts with large populations growing by well over 5% over a very sustained period of time, 30, 40 years. Uh, that has never been seen before. And if this continues, that's going to again be something that when you take a long look back at this period in history, will seem absolutely remarkable. This growth in China, the growth in India, uh, although at a lower rate, population over a billion people, and in some of the other countries of the region, is one of the big stories, clearly, uh, of our time. So this projection, this projected to carry on, and um, we're rather optimistic about the potential of this dynamism to continue. And there are some that say they're going to run out of labor, they're going to run out of whatever, resources and so on. We are uh, more optimistic, although clearly the connection between this and sustainable development is something we need to think about. Now what's driving a lot of this is this very sharp change uh, from about 1990, as I mentioned, with the fall of the Berlin Wall, the opening up of China, the sharp change in cross-border flows. Uh, it's, this is happening goods and services, and you can look at container traffic, or you can look at other goods traffic, or you could look at people flying, and you get the same sorts of numbers. Um, but what you see here is capital flows across borders, uh, and this is capital flows to developing countries, emerging markets in this period. And you see from about 1990, this very sharp increase. These are very unstable numbers. They fluctuate a lot. Remittances are more stable. Actually, remittances are counter-cyclical, which is a very good thing about remittances uh, for workers. They tend to be more remittances when economies are doing badly. Uh, the recipient countries are doing badly as people send back more money to support their families. Uh, so they, they're very good in that respect. But the other flows, particularly the portfolio investment, bond and equity flows, uh, are very unstable. And they're concentrated. They go to handfuls of countries. Uh, however, what is clear when you look at them, is that over this period, there's been something very different happening with them, the sharp improvement. And if you look at these flows projected out now, you see that these are likely to continue. This year, continue. This year will be uh, a very unusual year, but that doesn't change the overall trend. Uh, now, <laughs> this is an unusual year, so let's look at the stock markets over time. Note as well that this, again, is a logarithmic scale on the left. And what you see from this composite of stock markets since 1800, the last 200 years, is an exponential growth rate uh, across the world. Uh, difficult to, to always uh, remember when we open uh, the, the, the papers and look at the indices uh, today. And what you see is that even the 1929 crash was, it was very significant. It brought back the market by about 40 years. Um, but it was that. It was a sharp fluctuation on a trend. And so the key question here is, uh, particularly if, if we're going to live a long time and we can wait to live out these uh, sharp shocks, is will these trends continue? Or is something different going to happen? Is there discontinuity that will make these trends, which have continued for about 200 years, different 
uh, in the future. And I would argue that I think that these trends are rather stable. Although we also know from anything that exponential growth can't continue forever. Um, and uh, at some point, there will be a change in the trend line. But are we at that point now? Let's come back if you're interested to discuss that in the uh, conversation afterwards. A lot of what is behind this improvement is technology. And it's the integration of technology and society that really makes this a most remarkable time. Of course, there's been huge technological progress uh, historically, and there's always been bad predictions about technology. There's a good book called Bad Predictions, which I encourage you to look at if ever you're feeling overconfident, or you have colleagues that feel overconfident about telling the future. Uh, and it just is full of these brilliant people, uh, including many of the presidents and others that we know getting the future wrong. But technology is an area which we get wrong, uh, but there are some uh, const constant trends. And one of those trends, which I would argue, is uh, that it's going to really drive this story uh, in a very deep way and continue to drive it, is the computer uh, capacity. The ability uh, of people to put more and more information on smaller and smaller uh, memory sticks or silicon chips. And this is an interesting composite graphic. It shows what you can get for $1,000, so it's normalized by price. Uh, this, again, is a logarithmic scale uh, on this axis. And um, that's time, and that's sort of just a, some sort of representation of what you can get in terms of organic or, uh, or animal equivalent uh, for this. And what you see from this is a number of things. You see this constant improvement, uh, exponential improvement in the crunching capacity per unit of price, and you see a steepening of the trend. Uh, we're now about at spider level for $1,000, and there are people that suggest we'll be at about human brain level by about 2025, a very controversial area as well. If you look at Ray Kurzweil's work, Singularity, and so on, you see a lot of discussion on this. He's written a book uh, on this. Now, Gordon Moore, around here in 1967, said that this is likely to only last for about two or three generations, and then the capacity to etch silicon chips uh, would be a limiting factor. If you speak to the computer scientists at Oxford, they will tell you that they believe this will continue more or less indefinitely, because we have about another 10, 15 years on current technology to grow, and then by the time you get down to the problems of etching at molecular level, uh, we will be in quantum computing and a new generation of capacity. So that this is likely to continue, um, which means that uh, every 10 years you get a 10,000 times improvement in your computing capacity uh, for the same price, and uh, every 20 years you get a million times improvement in your computing capacity for the same price. And that is why uh, your mobile phones must probably have more power than the first Apollo sp spacecraft, and my son's PlayStation 3 uh, has about as much power as Deep Blue, which beat Kasparov um, 11 years ago. Uh, so that's what you get when you get that sort of trend improvement. And then you think, what does this do when you put it into society and into every application that you can imagine? And you combine it with something else, which is this ability to use it as an information and educational tool. So this is now beginning to lead to uh, step changes in the way we understand information and thinking and intelligence. So this is a graphic which uh, summarizes what we can store. Again, note, uh, logarithmic scale. 
in, this is in billions of gigabytes, uh, what we can store in our brain. This is how much additional is being created um, each year. So we're there now. More information is being created and put on the internet and other uh, electronic forms each year than all the information ever written historically and recorded. Okay? Uh, so each year more is being produced than all the books and everything else that exist. Uh, and this is growing at this exponential rate. And the good news is that the storage capacity, which used to be considered a binding constraint, is growing even more rapidly. So that increasingly what uh, ability is about is not what's in your head, but your ability or your firm's ability to connect, to network, to pull in all the information that exists, access it, make it sensible and useful to yourselves, and then uh, turn it into something which can work for you. So that is uh, the real trick now, is not what is in your head, but how can your head connect to everything else uh, that's all around. And that really is the challenge. And when you meet people that are able to do this, it's an absolutely remarkable thing, uh, who are able to access the information that's out there uh, effectively. And there's a, a growing skill in this. Of course, will this continue is unlikely to be a technical question, but if you read the book, The End of the Internet, this could be about the security of this data, whether it gets corrupted, who owns it, questions like that become vitally important. So these are all new technologies that are rapidly changing things in a rather fundamental way, so that the way we operate will be uh, very, very, very different. I'll just touch on a few of them. Nanotechnology, uh, absolutely crucial. Uh, this is billionth of a meter, uh, invisible to the human eye. This is a graphic representation of a dust mite on a nano machine. That's the sort of scale we're talking about. Uh, can be put in everything. We're developing a, an institute in the 21st century school on nano medicine, uh, which is looking at the creation of nano machines or nano gadgets, which would be in your bloodstream, in your brain, and elsewhere, delivering nano drugs or small drug samples. These things go right through the cell. And so the crucial question is, what are we doing here? Uh, is this safe? The regulatory environment in this, as in so many other of these areas, is way behind the capacity uh, of the technology. So regulation is sort of always trying to run to catch up with what's happening on technology, just like we've seen in the financial markets with derivatives and other technologies, similar things in other areas. And so we're looking at this very carefully to understand, is nano a new asbestiosis? Or is this something safe to use uh, for medicine? And what could you use it for? And we've created an institute for that purpose. Biotechnology, similarly, you'll know this well. Uh, it's been in the media a lot. A lot of controversy regarding, gen especially in the UK, genetically modified organisms. An area of immense potential, uh, which is just beginning uh, to be felt. And if you speak to someone like Craig Venter, he'll tell you that he thinks that you could even get carbon crunching uh, biotechnology that would reduce the carbon content of the uh, atmosphere. Many of these things provide enormous direct potential uh, for human improvements. So the ability to uh, improve our functioning and to deal with many of the things that afflict humans, which could lead uh, through genetic modifications, through genetic identification of defects, uh, pre-birth, prenatal, uh, through stem cell research. We have a wonderful new stem cell institute in the 21st century school, and I saw my first stem cell and a nerve being grown, a heart uh, cell throbbing, 
And this is really moving stuff. And if you think of people who are paraplegic or otherwise afflicted, uh, you can begin to think what this can do. And so I would suggest, and I have said this, that I don't think there'll be a Paralympics in 2050, for example, because of these. The young people will be, will be able to do it. But the big question is, will this mean a longer, healthier life for everyone? Or will this be something which only the wealthy uh, can afford? Will this be something maybe if you're a Swiss citizen you'll enjoy, but if you live in Burundi uh, is something completely foreign to you? And so are we moving to a world in which people are actually structurally very, very different in the future rather than just because of what used to differentiate them, which is their environment, their education, their nutrition and so on, which can be overcome through policy. Uh, but this, this leads to all sorts of questions about a new eugenics, uh, a potential not only to make people physically better, but actually uh, the science is allowing people to be mentally better as well, concentrate more, have higher IQs, and so on. So again, an area of great significance, perhaps the greatest significance of all these future trends, because it touches the very essence of who are we as humans and what do we believe as humans we should be, um, and an area as well where regulation is way behind the technology, way behind the capacity to create um, superhumans in one form or another, if you want to argue for that. Now, this, of course, it has a huge upside uh, in that it could make people really much better off. It could deal with many of the things that so afflict us now and the ones we love now. But it also requires a lot of deep thinking. And on this risk, the sort of question of where are we going, as humans. Uh, we have improvements which could take us higher from where we've come over time, but they're also major risks. And these risks are on a very wide range of areas. The risks that have always been there, um, pestilence and famine and so on, have been on Earth as long as we have. Uh, but there's a new set of things, and I would argue a different set of things going forward, and that's because of this growing complexity and also the technology allowing uh, new things. For example, uh, technology allowing uh, an individual to do something which maybe could destroy the planet, which never has happened, uh, been possible historically because no one individual uh, could do it. Certainly nation states could blow us up with nuclear weapons. Um, and that's by the creation of new pathogens, for example. Uh, we also have this interwoven complexity so that we don't really understand how one risk now affects others and it's in a very different way uh, to before. And of course, on top of those are new elements in things which have been going on a long time, particularly climate change. So what is the risk? Now, Martin Rees, who in my view is one of the smartest people in Britain, he's the head of the Royal Society, Astronomy Royal and uh, Master of Trinity at, at Cambridge. Um, believes there's a 50% chance of civilization not surviving the 21st century. And he's written a book, Our Final Century, which in the US has a question mark uh, at the end uh, because the publisher insisted on it, um, which I, if, you, if you have over-optimistic friends, um, you might want to give to them. Now, let's say he's wrong and pe a pessimist, although he's a wonderfully warm, uh, optimistic human being, uh, and it's only 5%. It's still enough for all of us to have a sort of Project Manhattan uh, focus on. And that's the question. And the others that have given similar sorts of things. What we mean by this, these are risks that would radically alter the trajectory of human beings 
uh, going forward. That's what we mean by existential risk. So it's some, not something that's just going to affect one population somewhere, but it's something that is going to change the way we are in the long term uh, and set us back in a very dramatic way. These can be man-made, like a bomb or, or set of bombs, trigger reaction on bombs, or of course they can be natural, as has happened historically, uh, asteroid strike volcanoes and so on. The problem in understanding all of this is that we really don't understand the data sets we have and they're changing very rapidly. Uh, and that's partly because of this growing complexity. Many more people living in a much more interdependent world with technologies that bind them in ways and economies that bind them in ways that uh, never existed before. So that maybe 300 years ago, if something happened in Latin America, you wouldn't know about it in China. Now, if there's a strike in Portugal, the factory uh, the car factory in Oxford stops the next day. Uh, if there's a, an avian flu pandemic in Vietnam, we get scared uh, the, same day, the same minute it happens that we know about it. So these are new complexities, uh, new interdependencies that we don't understand and the rapidly changing nature of them. What are the turning points? How do we identify them? This is water boiling and the 1929 crash. Very interesting to see. You have these changes in state. Uh, that in experimental physics you can understand, but in markets, as the last weeks have borne out, we really don't have a handle on. We also, even when we throw lots of resources at it, don't really uh, understand complexity uh, in, in nature. This is, this is US hurricane prediction over these two years. This is, as you know, a massive multi-billion dollar operation of prediction, of understanding. Uh, you see a number of trends which are indicative of, uh, this is the best you get, by the way, so I don't want to knock them, but you see a number of trends in terms of um, the, the, the ability of forecasting. One is they always get it wrong, so they're too low or too high. The other is they cluster together because they use similar uh, computer simulations. And thirdly, they overreact, so they predict too low, they predict, they tweak their models, they predict too high, uh, but they're right. Now, these are the best you get, so I'd rather have them telling me than anyone else, but it's this is, as you know, from watching the, you know, the CNN the day before hurricanes are due to strike the Gulf Coast, we really don't understand what's going on here and get it wrong a lot of the time. The other way to understand risk is asking people. Uh, I'm sure you've all filled in your perception surveys of risks numerous times. And we know that these are largely backward looks. You know, what, what happened yesterday or what do you hear from your friends? And how does this go into the future? This is really only as good uh, as they are, which is a perception survey. They don't tell you anything about the future. Uh, and they move around very quickly. This is World Economic Forum. Uh, they move very quickly from year to year. So a risk one uh, that's rated very high one year will suddenly become low and so on. I'm sure that you know, everyone's got on their mind at the moment financial risk. And one of the issues for the 21st century school is how do we keep the bigger picture on the broader set of issues out there. We know also how we can analyze this. We can do probability and impact assessments, uh, typical risk curves. What's interesting about all these risk curves is the tail is wagging much more. The tails are becoming longer and they're wagging. So the instability is at the end of the tail, uh, which again makes it much more difficult to predict. And of course, the, the value instability because of population density, because of complexity, because something when one place is impacting on another much more rapidly. 
uh, we have this interdependency. The one you know about uh, most perhaps is this one. I'm a pessimist on climate change, I'm afraid, uh, and believe that what we're doing now is much too little uh, to really affect this trend in the short term. And so we are likely to see at least an average increase in temperatures of 2%. Uh, these are the IPCC projections, but this needs dramatic action. And again, we don't understand what the tipping points are. We don't understand the implications for localities, for biodiversity chains and other things. We have four institutes now in the 21st school, century school on this, working on energy, oceans, forestry, and uh, broad uh, environmental issues like carbon uh, trading and so on and uh, with a lot of economic content and together uh, we're trying to come up with various policies but this is obviously an area where there's a lot of work in great places around the world. Pandemics is the one we're most myopic about. Uh, this has always been the biggest killer of people. The 1919-1918 uh, Spanish flu killed maybe 10 times as or more people than the First World War. Uh, and yet how many people know about it? How many of our kids learn about it in their history books uh, or anything else? So this is a major issue in understanding uh, pandemics, understanding uh, where they're likely to strike, what we could do about it uh, is vital and we have a great institute on emergent infections uh, in the 21st century school that's working on this and working with governments on it. This is the sort of thing you can do. You can develop strategies and this is the strategy coming out of um, uh, our institute on what you would do with drug distribution. Would you give it to everyone quickly? Would you place it around the country and only give it to health workers or vulnerable people? What's, and how would that affect likely mortality? And this is just a simple model which suggests give it to everyone as quickly as possible and you'll save millions of lives. So real policy relevant stuff which is one of our objectives. I mentioned bio-risk. This is perhaps the biggest uh, unknown. Um, and what we do about it, of course, and what it means for privacy. The role of intelligence gathering is vital. Uh, the, the area of health modification I've mentioned, um, we can change virtually everything going forward about humans uh, or will be able to in the coming years. Who will control this? Who will decide? Who will have it? Uh, are vital, vital questions. Um, I don't want to only point to the negatives though. There is evidence, and this is again controversial evidence, that small improvements in, for example, intelligence or concentration could have dramatic social benefits, leading to, for example, reductions in poverty, males in jail, or whatever other social indicator you wanted to use. So there are upsides. And there are also upsides in other forms of enhancement. Would we like long-distance truck drivers to have concentration-improving drugs when we know uh, that that is a major health hazard uh, for all of us, and so on. So we can think of many areas, and private companies, of course, might want to enhance the competitiveness of their company and the effectiveness of their workers by sprinkling something on their breakfast uh, cereal or their canteen coffee. And if they don't, and someone in some other country does, what are they going to do about it? Are they going to lose? So you might do whatever you want nationally, but it's not a national story, this is a global story, and so we need a global coordination. On this, what we do, there is absolutely no global coordination. So the question is, are we here? Are we going to be what we basically were determined by evolution, or are we going to be something very different? 
who's going to run all of this is an absolutely crucial question. And we are developing a competence again to work in this area. All of these institutions were created in a different time for different sorts of issues. They're the best we got, but would you rely on them to solve our problems? And as we see in the current financial crisis, where are our global institutions? Where's the BIS? Anyone heard about it? Bank for International Center, where's the IMF developed to create financial stability in the world? Where are they? And would they be able to, and even in those areas, deal with 21st century problems? Now you take all sorts of new dimensions of the 21st century. And I would argue the most crucial question collectively for mankind is how are we going to, who's the management committee? Who's got their hands on the wheel? How are we going to manage in a very much more interdependent world? And what sort of responsibility would we like to manage at the national or community level? And what would we like to manage at the global level? And how will that work? This is a debate which we would like to nurture, to flourish. It's obviously a very big one. And it's where private corporates have a crucial role. Because multinationals, private corporates, have mastered many of these things at their firm level. So they know how to manage things globally, across cultures, across, to get things done. And it's, of course, much more in the future a question of how do you bring the skills of different groups, of technologies, to bear on management uh, that we need to be focusing. So on these questions, we'll determine where we go uh, with all of this. Are we going to enjoy this massive improvement that I've indicated, this period of remarkable development of humanity of the post-war period, our lucky generation that we are. Is that, are we going to hand that on to our kids so they're even luckier and have a better future? Or is there something, some tipping point here? Is there something different that's going to happen which is going to make the world an even uh, more dangerous place to live in uh, and make their opportunities less than ours, which would be a really dismal outcome after all this huge outpouring of development uh, that's occurred. So that's the purpose of the 21st century school, to look at these issues. We have 15 different institutes uh, working on a very wide range of areas. I'll give you uh, some, I'll leave some handouts here on the school, but we're looking at these things across many themes, 15 themes, emergent infections, different dimensions of climate change, the mind, we're dealing with a special group on Parkinson's and dementia, as well as the broad themes. And we have a very strong group on bioethics. We have about 85 faculty in the school currently full-time. Uh, the biggest single group is philosophers and ethics, ethicists, about seven of them. And then we have many people in physics, materials, medicine, a very good cancer group that's just starting as well uh, in this. So uh, I encourage you to, uh, if you're interested in any of these one areas, uh, to, to look at their websites but also to uh, try and help us in what we're trying to do, which is raise awareness about these broader issues. In this very, very noisy financial uh, <laughs> crisis, uh, it's very difficult to think of the broader set, but that is vital. So these are the institutes, and that's uh, our website. Thank you so much uh, for this, and uh, I really look forward to the discussion.